Welcome to This Civic Moment, where we dive headfirst into the issues affecting our communities and explore the possibilities of our civic future with local and regional leaders. I'm Bethany Copeland. And I'm Eric Ryder. We're graduate fellows with the Gephardt Institute for Civic and Community Engagement at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for being with us today. Today we are speaking with Blake Strode. Blake is the executive director of Arch City Defenders, a nonprofit civil rights law firm in St. Louis, Missouri, that provides holistic legal advocacy and combats the criminalization of poverty and state violence against poor people and people of color. Blake is a native of the St. Louis region and joined Arch City as a Skadden Fellow and staff attorney following his graduation from Harvard Law School in 2015. Blake attended the University of Arkansas and majored in international economics and Spanish. He regularly speaks at conferences and panels throughout the country and has authored columns and essays for publication on issues of race, policing, and criminal justice. Blake's leadership has garnered several accolades, including the 2020 Missouri Lawyers Media Legal Champion, Harvard Law School's Bellow Charn Championship of Justice Emerging Leader Award, as well as the Emerging Leaders Award by Focus St. Louis's What's Right with the Region. Blake co-hosts the, the podcast Under the Arch with Kayla Reed of Action St. Louis, which discusses issues impacting community and the people working to change them. There they have spoken to such iconic leaders such as Dr. Angela Davis, Leslie McSpadden, the mother of Michael Brown, and Olivia Pope herself, Carrie Washington. Welcome to the podcast, Blake. We usually begin our podcast by asking guests about their early life and childhood. So could you tell us a little bit about your growing up and the values instilled in you that led you to the work you're doing now? Uh, sure, I can try. So I, I grew up in the St. Louis region. Um in St. Louis County, uh, we always lived in St. Louis County and North County. Um, so my the earliest home I remember was in Charlac, and then uh, moved to Berkeley when I was probably I don't know seven or so, six or seven, um, and lived there until almost until high school, um, until about thirteen, and we moved to Bridgeton. So different municipalities in North St. Louis County sort of moving north and west over time. Um, and my my mother's side of the family is from St. Louis. So I have you know, a bunch of cousins and aunts and uncles all over town. And my grandmother has lived in University City my whole life. Uh, and my dad is from Tennessee. So we always went down to Tennessee to visit his family. But my my upbringing in St. Louis was very, um, it was a lot of things. It was, it was very diverse, um, both in terms of experience and other, other people that were part of, um, my social life in one area or another. Uh, I started, my sister and I started going to school at a elementary school that's now closed in university city called Del Mar Harvard. And it sits, uh, it has that name because it sits at, right at the entrance to the loop, a cross street called Harvard as you're entering the Del Mar Loop. And the school, in, in hindsight, what I recognize about that school is that it was very unusually diverse for St. Louis mm-hmm. um, as a, a public school. But because of where it sits at that particular intersection, 
Um, there's quite a lot of uh, socioeconomic diversity, um, very kids from very wealthy families that lived on one side of Del Mar in big, beautiful homes, manicured lawns, and some that came from public housing, you know, on the other side of, of Del Mar. Um, it was racially very diverse. Um, religiously, you know, that area has a large Jewish population. I remember um, children from immigrant families in that school. So I, the, the older I get, the more I reflect on that kind of formative experience in that particular school as one that really early on um, <clears throat> taught me to, to value difference and diversity, but also to begin identifying differences in, in material experiences. You know, I remember kids coming to school and getting teased for like having hand-me-down shoes or clothes mm. or, um, you know, all the, the sort of silly things that children do, but that also mirror the ways that we treat each other in broader society. Um, so anyway, that was, that was like a very formative experience in that particular school. And then over time, my, my other local, um, K to 12 school experiences were moving from that to MICDS, Mary Institute Country Day School, very wealthy, very white, um, very sheltered environment in Ladue, uh, to Pattonville High School, a, a public high school, suburban north, and um, I think technically it's in Maryland Heights. Uh, that was about racially, it was like 75, 25, white, black, um, very middle class. And and across those three different educational experiences, I think I just saw very different parts of St. Louis, mm -hmm. different kind of um, cultural and social milieu in each one of those places. Um, and and yeah, that kind of characterized my my upbringing. Yeah, that's so interesting that you say that, because I know Eric nor I are from St. Louis. We're not from here, but I know one of the first things I learned about St. Louis mm -hmm. was the question, where did you go to high school? Mm -hmm. And all mm -hmm. that that question carries with it. So it's interesting that you brought up not only your high school experience, but also the elementary and um, middle school experiences and kind of how you saw the differences in those that kind of formed who you were and shaped your perspective. Yeah, totally. I mean, my my parents, my mom was uh, an educator for her whole career. She worked for parents as teachers. So she was a parent educator. She would go into um, people's homes who had kids from newborn up to, I think, age five or six, something like that. Um, and it was it was a program offered through the public school system. So she was technically employed by the University City School District. That's part of why we ended up in that U City school. Um, and part of you know, part of what's unique about um, what was unique about her job is it was one of these universal programs. And so she had clients that also sort of cut across racial, socioeconomic, ge geographic territories that people don't typically traverse in their daily life. Um, and I, I think in hindsight that, you know, also shaped her approach to raising us and and the kinds of experiences that that she um made sure that we had that she and my my dad were pretty insistent about making sure that we had so 
we just lived this, you know, we were sort of crossing over invisible boundaries in St. Louis all the time. And we had family on one side of town and school on another side of town. And I grew up playing tennis. So I was playing tennis uh, in places all over the region that I would have no reason to go to, except that there's a tennis club there. And so, so it's just this like constant, um, exposure to lots of different spaces, which I think is both just good from a learning standpoint, but also did give me a lens um, ultimately to to have a, a bit more critical perspective on some of the differences that I saw across those things. Yeah. And we wanted to ask you a little bit more about that, actually, because not only did you play tennis, but you were an All-American tennis player. Um, yeah. And you played professionally as well, competing at the U.S. Open in 20 or 2010. So what made you decide to pursue law after your professional tennis career? And how do you think your experience in sports impacted your advocacy and community involvement? Hmm. Um, that's a good question. So the to the first question, uh, I, I always had I had kind of these twin tracks happening all the time between you know, school and tennis for, for throughout my youth um, and into early adulthood. And then when I graduated from college, you know, it's, it's going to be one or the other. They're not going to continue on the same path. And so I, I always knew that um, I was interested in law school, even before I knew what I wanted to major in, in undergrad, I knew I wanted to go to law school. I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, and I think that came from reading books and articles and watching movies and TV shows early in life and having the sense that lawyers, you know, had this kind of unique position to fight injustice and to, um, you know, identify the the underdog that just needed a champion and, and push for something bigger than oneself. And so I was really drawn to that idea. I have a, I have a, much more critical view of lawyers today. But <laughs> at the time, I was really drawn to the idea of lawyering based on that kind of model that we see in pop culture. Um, and so it was always there. And so even when I played tennis professionally, I actually was deferring law school. So I, I deferred one year at a time and, and each year Harvard allowed me to defer. Um, and after the third deferral, I sort of set a, a goal that if I didn't reach, I don't remember what it was now, but if I didn't reach some goal within a, uh, set amount of time that I was going to go to law school that fall. And so that's what um, I ended up doing. But it was always there as as one of my my major interests. But yeah, I, I loved tennis. I still love tennis to this day. It's my first love. Um, and I do think that I, I think there are lots of things about how I just move through the world, interact with people, approach my work that are shaped by um, my experience as a tennis player and as an athlete. And I've, it's everything from work ethic. Um, I have, I, I am a perfectionist. And so I'm always, I'm constantly trying to refine things, which I think comes from that experience. You know, if you play any sport or really any kind of craft, you're constantly tinkering to try to get a little bit better, get a little bit more of an edge. And so I think I have that kind of, habit built in um and also in the in the adversarial process that is lawyering specifically but also is is advocacy or engaging in issues that touch on politics there's always this kind of like adversarial 
dynamic and um i'm i'm both very comfortable with that because of tennis like i'm not you know competition and and be having an adversary isn't something that's foreign to me um and i think i i really as a result value good strategy and trying to really refine a strategy um to to get to the goal so yeah, I think, I, I think it has really shaped my approach to the work that I do today. Yeah, and speaking of um, an adversary and kind of strategizing around it, um, you led the efforts to secure a $4.75 million settlement of a debtor, debtor's prison claim against the city of Jennings. Um, and you said that almost 2,000 people collectively spent more than 8,000 nights in the city's jail for failure to pay between 2010 yeah. and 2015. So considering that experience um, and all of the work that Arch City Defenders does in this arena, do you see the dial moving one way or the other on the ways that the law criminalizes those living in poverty? And then what does reforming or changing the system look like to you? So, uh, yeah, I was I was really privileged to be um, a part of that really historic um, settlement. I, I should say there were there were lots of folks who were involved and critical in making that happen. And I came in sort of midstream mm. to that case. It was filed in early 2015 before I joined Arch City Defenders. Um, by my my predecessors, Thomas Harvey, who was the founding ED, Michael John Voss, one of the co-founders, um, Brendan Rodiger at SLU Law Clinics, John Ammon, um, and a, a, a lawyer named Eric Karakitsanis, who now runs a group called Civil Rights Corps. So it was a, a real kind of coalition of, of co-counsel and lawyers that were the driving force behind that case. And, and as a brand new lawyer, I was able to come in at the kind of negotiation phase and um, get into the weeds of some some of the numbers that you just cited and thinking about the per diem allocation of damages that people would receive um, and then was there when we successfully mediated that case and helped to lead the what's called class notice process when you're letting people know about a lawsuit and answering questions and guiding them to, to um, complete claims to be able to receive money. And then, of course, when it was finally approved, I was I was also there for that. Um, and I think that that lawsuit, um, you know, we still that it was settled in 2016 and it's still one of the ones that I get asked about the most when I'm going and speaking about our work, because uh, at the time, I believe it was the the largest per diem class action settlement for a debtor's prison case anywhere in the country. Mm. And that meant people were getting real money back in their pockets for the harm that they suffered. Um, and I think it, it communicated to other uh, jurisdictions across the region, across the state, that there was a cost for engaging in those practices. Um, and we have litigated, have litigated and are litigating very similar claims in many other municipalities across St. Louis from Ferguson, Florissant, Normandy, Edmondson, St. Anne, Maplewood, um, Arnold, Missouri, we had a similar claim. So this, this was something that was happening. Poor people were being warehoused in jails and held as 
fundraising for the city held to try to generate revenue for the city in the form of fines and fees and, and bail um, in places all over St. Louis City, County and, and surrounding. And so a, a case like Jennings, I think, communicates that there is a cost, that there can be a cost to engaging in those kinds of practices. And what we've seen through all of that litigation is that the um, you know, sometimes I say that they, they're doing less business than they used to do. The numbers, when you look at traffic tickets issued, um, municipal court revenues, warrants issued, in most places are way down from where they were almost eight years ago when, when I started at Arch City. Um, and when that litigation started and when people were sort of reeling on the other side of the, the Ferguson uprising. And I think that has to do with a lot of factors, but I think the litigation is one important piece that um, changed the calculus for municipal leaders across the region um, in terms of the risk that they would bear if they continue to, to engage in some of those abuses. Wow, that's incredible. Um, and I know that you mentioned earlier that kind of your what got you into the legal world was this idea to fight injustice. And mm. that story kind of speaks to you mm. getting to do that. But you also mentioned that you're you have a more nuanced perspective about lawyering now. Could you speak a yeah. little bit more about that? Sure. I mean, w one thing that I've learned from um, some some models and, and mentors in this work is the importance of um, decentering lawyers and lawyering in broader movement work. I think of Arch City now very much as a movement organization, as one that is dedicated to building and strengthening an ecosystem in which everyday people can kind of pool their power and push for structural changes that serve their interests. And um, all of that is, is um, an act of resistance to systems of oppression that have created the kinds of inequities that exist today. And we have to be honest about the fact that one of those systems of oppression has been the legal system and has been a system of lawyers and judges and insiders that maximize their own benefit at the expense sometimes of, of marginalized people and marginalized communities. And so, you know, what, what I believe strongly is that there is a, an important role, a really critical role for lawyers to play in as part of that movement in partnership and in community and in, in collaboration with organizers and activists and policy advocates and just members of communities and neighborhoods that lawyers can be in deep solidarity with other folks and do good work. But it's also very possible um, if, if, if one is not careful as a lawyer, it is very possible um, to do real harm and, and sometimes to unintentionally do harm because there's not enough proximity and solidarity with people um, who are actually most impacted by changes in the law, changes in legal doctrine. Um, and so that's something that I, I'm constantly learning with my peers and colleagues here and other folks that we're engaged and work with. Um, but it's, it's, I think, unfortunately, still not the approach to lawyering that is, that is mainstream um, and that shapes most legal institutions. Yeah, I appreciate that distinction and that 
clarification. It's really beautiful mm-hmm. to hear about that work from that perspective. Thank yeah, you. and kind of building off of that idea of, you know, these large kind of broad coalitions um, that are working together to push that change that you talked mm-hmm. about. So you and Arch City Defenders were um, involved in the Close the Workhouse campaign, um, yeah. which sought to close the St. Louis City Medium Security Institute, otherwise known as the Workhouse. Um, and since the beginning of that campaign in 2018, the workhouse has been emptied and Mayor Jones has zeroed out funding for the city budget. Do you think that those actions have had um, a big impact on justice in St. Louis? And then, you know, what else needs to be done to get to that true justice? Yeah, I do. I think it's had a, a huge impact. I'm very proud of um, all of the work, Arch Cities and and that of our partners and and particularly that of impacted formerly incarcerated people that have that made up the membership of that campaign. Um, And again, just everyday community members who may not have been incarcerated, but really dedicated time and energy to being part of that, uh, that campaign and that movement. I I think it's one of the most most beautiful um, grassroots fights that we've seen in St. Louis in the time that I've been back. And there's no question in my in my mind that it's made a huge impact. I mean, you talked about the, um, the the kind of bottom line, which is that right now the workhouse is empty. It's been zeroed out. The mayor has committed to closing it. Um, it's also true that the the level of um, the jail population in St. Louis is lower than it has been at, at any time in recorded history if you look at even you know St. Louis City's own um numbers the jail population right now i think is hovering in the low 500s and when we started that work it was closer to 1100 wow. so we're talking about a huge shift in the number of people suffering in cages every day in this city in a fairly short period of time um i also think it opened people's consciousness around how to think about public safety that we're we are socialized at a very very early age to associate public safety specifically with policing and prosecution and cages and that's it and part of what the close workhouse campaign has tried to offer is a conception of public safety that is all about community wellness that is all about health and housing and education and after school programs Um, and creating conditions of thriving in our communities. And I think that's a concept, you know, we now hear these terms get tossed around all the time. You hear people say, reimagine public safety. And, you know, we're we're partial to the phrase re-envision public safety. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes, you know, I love that that language has been popularized. I also think there's a way in which language gets co-opted. And once it becomes so popular, people are saying it without thinking about what it means. Mm -hmm. But part of the reason people are saying it so much is because there there was a kind of breaking through, I think of public consciousness around different models of achieving public safety and some, you know, skepticism about this knee jerk reaction to just be more punitive, more carceral in every moment around every solution. And so that, you know, part of the legacy of, of close the workhouse to me is that, um, and, and I should say it's not uh, that work is not done. The close the workhouse campaign has been much more quiet because 
of course, the jail is empty and and the commitment for closure. But one of the demands that the campaign held for years was a a community led process to re-envision what happens with the physical space that is the workhouse, Mm -hmm. to actually think about what productive community uses could come from that physical space that's caused so much harm and trauma. And uh, one of the things I'm most excited about is is quietly in the background, the the, the city and this administration, to their credit, uh, issued an RFP process to begin exactly that community-led um, redesign and reimagining of what could happen with the workhouse. And so there's a, a group that is um, working with, with people impacted by incarceration now, and I think they're developing a process for what it's going to look like. And and when that happens and when there's more known about it and it's more public, I expect Close the Workhouse to still be engaging people and pulling people into that process so that we can all be a part of you know, the, the transformative element of this work, which is actually creating the kind of world that we want to see. Yeah. And I really appreciate that you brought in where that uh, campaign currently stands, that it mm-hmm. didn't just end as numbers decreased and as, as it was erased from the budget, but there's still work to be done to truly transform that space. Um, yes. And as we talk about carceral systems, we have to talk about the historical element of that. And mm-hmm. another coalition that you, you and Arch City Defenders have been a part of um, is the campaign for reparations here in St. Mm-hmm. Louis. And I did want to add that we're recording this two days after the National Reparations Awareness Day, which occurred on February 25th. Um, so you and the org were part of 25 local organizations that uh, campaigned for a plan for the city. And in December 2022, Mayor Jones signed an executive order to establish a reparations commission. So first, again, congratulations on your work to make this happen. And kind of to start, like, why now? Can you speak more about what brought the coalition together to send that memo and demand reparations at this moment in time? Yeah, why now is an excellent question because it is obviously so long overdue. Um, I I think part of why now is because um, all of the things we've been talking about are are people-driven, you know, community-driven campaigns, demands, calls to action, uh, and the, the kind of grassroots activism and organizing that we have seen in the years since the the Ferguson uprising, I think have just created the sort of relationships and connectivity and infrastructure to be able to put forward a sustained call around reparations. You know, we're we're hardly the first group of people anywhere, let alone even in St. Louis, we're hardly the first group of people to say we need we need to have a serious process around reparations. But what exists to today is enough connectivity between people on the ground, movement organizations, advocacy groups, elected officials that all together can say, we need to make this happen and then move the levers to actually bring that about. And I think that just wasn't true in the past. Um, And so, yeah, the the fact that the mayor has appointed, um, or actually I think the appointments have not happened yet, but she has announced the the formation of a commission and given a general outline of that, um, 
I, I can't say for certain mayors before wouldn't have done that, but I can't see at least her immediate, you know, couple predecessors taking a step like that. And so I think even even the the particular leadership, the individual leadership that we have in place in St. Louis is a reflection of the work that has happened at the grassroots to get certain types of leaders in place to be able to make something like that happen. Um, and to me, reparations really is um, an opportunity. Reparations offers a framework to excavate our history and look at it honestly and then ask ourselves the question of what responsibility we bear to correct harms. Typically we've take one or two of those steps, but never quite see through, see it through to its logical extension. You know, as we've said many times, I, I'm a lawyer. One of the core tenets of American law is in theory that when a harm is done, there ought to be some redress for that harm. That's what lawsuits happen every single day on that very simple premise. And reparations, really, the, the concept behind reparations is no different than that. What we know in St. Louis and Missouri and all over the country, we know that public and private interests together have created the wildly disparate racial outcomes that we see today in a million different ways. We could talk about housing, we could talk about jobs, we could talk about the criminal legal system, we can talk about taxes and public schools, everything. Mm -hmm. This was not you know, just some private bad actors. This is public policy coming together with many private actors. And when we look at any public institution or um, system and the, the city of St. Louis as a public system, it bears a lot of responsibility for what St. Louis looks like today, including the, the huge racial disparities that exist in St. Louis today. So I'm just really excited about an opportunity to lift up much of the, the work, the scholarship, the, the lived experiences that um, that have been, that, that we've already seen so much tremendous work around in terms of uh, you know, policy, studies and storytelling exercises and um, some of our local scholars, I think about a work like uh, Walter Johnson's Broken Heart of America. You know, there's, there's so many examples that have sort of laid bare this history for us. So I'm really excited to kind of synthesize all of that and then ask the question of what we are responsible for as a result of that, what, what we have some collective responsibility to take up as a result of that. Um, and I hope I hope that's what happens as as part of the reparations commission. And what happens next? Where do yeah. you see the movement going from here, since it's relatively new? Yeah, well, I I I think this is an issue of very high interest in St. Louis, from what I can tell. I mean, um, ever since we made public that first memo that we'd sent, I get questions about this all the time. There's been you know, media have covered it. I think a lot of people will want to engage. Um, I expect there to be public forums where people can engage and have this really public conversation about racial harm and the need for reparations. Um, and then I expect that there will be organizing around demands to actually um, have 
material reparations in St. Louis and what form that takes, I think, remains to be seen. Um, I think it should take many forms. You know, sometimes when we talk about reparations, people's minds immediately go to individual checks being sent and cashed, which might very well be a part of a reparation scheme, but it's hardly the the entirety of what reparations means or stands for. And we have examples, again, all over the world, um, including in this country, that include everything from policy changes to curriculum changes to building monuments to public apologies um, and yes to compensation. And, and that can take a bunch of different forms, but I'm just really excited to to be able to think about that boundless menu of ways that we might actually take seriously the idea of repair uh, and then begin down that road. Awesome. Um, and you co-host the podcast Under the Arch with uh, yeah. Kayla Reed of Action St. Louis, um, with, where you both discuss the issues impacting community and uh, the people working uh issues impacting community and the people working to change them where you've spoken to icons like um, Angela, Dr. Angela Davis, um, Leslie McSpadden, who's the mother of Michael Brown. And of course, Olivia Pope herself, Ms. Carrie <laughs> Washington. So, uh, uh, yeah. um, you know, what was, I guess the impetus for wanting to come together and have those conversations in this way. And, you know, what do you hope to achieve by sharing that with the region? Yeah, I we love the podcast. It's it's coming back soon for in like the next couple of weeks um, for season four. So we're we're working on the the lineup of episodes now. But I think uh, Kayla and I, so Kayla Reed, executive director of Action St. Louis, which is a really powerful, phenomenal um, grassroots racial justice organization in St. Louis, and and much of the work we've been talking about today. Mm-hmm. Uh, Arch City has done in partnership with with Action St. Louis um, and other great orgs. And so Kayla and I are, you know, having conversations all the time about things happening in St. Louis and, you know, great work and challenges people are facing and, you know, things we've read that has shaped our thinking. And I think at one point, you know, however long ago, four years ago-ish, I guess it was, um, we were like, we should we should do a podcast maybe people would be interested in having some of these conversations and we could bring on cool people and talk to them about some of that stuff and so that's exactly what it has been we've had three seasons now um you named some of the amazing guests i mean i i did not in my wildest dreams i didn't think when we started the podcast we would get you know Angela Davis <laughs> on the podcast. That was amazing. I have to shout out for it through Ferguson because it was part of their racial equity summit that they asked us to come on and do that live recording um, with Angela Davis or Carrie Washington, who's really this this kind of amazing uh, advocate and, and supporter of grassroots organizations doing electoral justice work, which is mm-hmm. one of the things that Action St. Louis does. And so that's how that connection happened. Um, and we've heard from people, you know, I randomly hear from people all the time because it's sort of hard to know. You all know you're doing this podcast. You don't really know who's listening <laughs> and you know, what they think of it. It kind of goes out into the ether. And then it's like, well, I hope somebody enjoys that. But 
I hear from people just randomly all the time, like, I love Under the Arches, <laughs> you know, <laughs> learn so much from Under the Arch. So it's great. I love to hear that from people. And I have also learned a ton from Under the Arch. You know, I talked about Walter Johnson and Broken Heart of America. We had him on the podcast and that was a great episode. I mean, he's just absolutely brilliant. Um, I mean, we've had amazing people on and um, learned so much from them. And it's been uh, a way of, of, sort of bringing, making public and democratizing information that we feel like we have access to. Yeah. When you mentioned season four is about to get started, any episodes that you're excited about or previews you want to give for us? Um, oh, I should have been more ready for this. Well, actually, <laughs> one of our first, ep- it might be the first episode, but we expect it to be one of our first episodes will be on reparations, given oh, all that is happening awesome. um, with reparations in St. Louis. And so... Uh, stay tuned for that one. That could happen very soon. Um, what? Yeah. What? What do I actually know will happen versus what have we just talked about? <laughs> we always we tend to bring on um, at least once a season. We'll bring on uh, a, a local lawmaker, elected official, to sort of talk about current events happening in St. Louis. So I would expect. Um, expect at least one episode that that's shaped around that. We also are doing a, a ton of housing and tenant work right now. We've done an episode in the past on uh, housing as a human right, the, the, the concept of that and tenant advocacy in particular. Um, and since then, Action St. Louis, we've worked with Action St. Louis on um, a new campaign called We the Tenants, which is really already shaping housing policy in St. Louis and currently fighting for a a right to counsel legislation Mm -hmm. at uh, the Board of Aldermen. So there's there's lots of stuff in St. Louis that I think we'll be talking about. It's not always St. Louis focused. Sometimes we pick up, you know, national subject matter. I think we're really interested in doing an episode on the the attack on trans youth right now and what that what that looks like and how that really lands with those who are impacted on the ground. So, uh, yeah, part of, part of the fun of it is that there's never any shortage of really interesting topics. And there's also not a shortage of of brilliant people to bring on and and talk to. Yeah. Well, thank you. We definitely wanted to make a plug for everyone to check that out. Um, And we like to ask our guests one final question at the end of each episode. So what is currently giving you hope? Um, I think what, what always gives me the most hope are the, the spaces um, that have been created for people to come together and identify shared interests and identify uh, and then marshal their own power. So to me, that looks like uh, monthly movement meetings that we hold, um, we being the Close the Workhouse campaign, the Defund, Re-Envision, Transform campaign, um, our partners at Action and Ford through Ferguson and Freedom Community Center. Um, and they're just spaces where community members come together and begin from the premise that we have the power to shape and shift the conditions around us and then decide how we're going to work together to do that. So that gives me a lot of hope that we, the tenants campaign is, uh, is doing the very same thing with renters all over the St. Louis area. And that gives me a lot of hope. 
Um, so even though I think in many ways our politics are fraught at this moment, um, I, I know that people always are resisting and that resistance is very hopeful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing. And I know I've enjoyed this conversation so much and appreciate all the work that you're doing out there. Um, so thank you for giving yes, time to us today. You. No, thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. And uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for being with us as we dive into this civic moment. You can find the Gephardt Institute for Civic and Community Engagement on Facebook and Instagram, and you can subscribe to This Civic Moment everywhere podcasts are found. Be sure to drop a five-star review and give us your feedback in the comments. You can also support This Civic Moment and the Gephardt Institute with your monetary gifts at gephardtinstitute.wussel.edu. We'll see you next time.